1: I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for February 26, 2022. After weeks of escalating tensions and military aggression, Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. At the time of this recording, Russian troops are inching closer to the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. The Russians are reportedly launching ballistic missiles into the city, and residents are huddled in air raid shelters. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from November 2018. In the episode, Ben Wittes spoke with Alina Polyakova and Scott R. Anderson about Russian aggression toward Ukraine in the Sea of Azov and Vladimir Putin's lawlessness in Eastern Europe. They discussed the international law implications of the conflict and the domestic politics in both Ukraine and Russia. Just a reminder, this is not current analysis
2: about the ongoing crisis in Ukraine.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 27th, 2018. I know you thought naval warfare was dead, but this week... Russia and Ukraine went at it in a strait you've probably never heard of, the Kerch Strait, which separates the Black Sea from the Sea of Azov. It's the latest salvo in Russia's secret, not-so-secret, war against Ukraine over Crimea, over the two provinces in eastern Ukraine. And it's the latest thing that has the world talking about Vladimir Putin's lawlessness in his backyard, With me in the Jungle Studio to talk about it all are my Brookings colleagues, Alina Polyakova of the Foreign Policy Program and Scott Anderson of Lawfare and the Governance Studies Program. We talked about what happened this week. We talked about the international law implications. We talked about the domestic politics in both Ukraine and Russia the name Donald Trump never came up. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 368. We've done a lot of episodes, people. Alina and Scott talk Ukraine and Russia. Alina, let's start for those who haven't been, you know, religiously following each incremental development in the new Crimean War. What happened over the last few days between Ukraine and Russia and well, let's start there, what happened?
1: So if you haven't been following the, uh, the recent developments, uh, basically what happened over the weekend uh, was that there was um, an attack by a Russian vessel, a Russian Navy ship on a Ukrainian tugboat. Uh, the Russian ship basically rammed the Ukrainian tugboat in the Sea of Azov. So for the listeners that don't know where the Sea of Azov is, It's a relatively small body of water that is bordered uh, by Ukraine on the west, Russia on the east, and to the south, you have what is called the Kerch Strait. And the Kerch Strait is this passage um, that connects the Sea of Azov to the much larger Black Sea. And it's also uh, a contested area because it also connects Crimea, which Russia occupies, to mainland Russia via a bridge that the Russians built in May of this year. And so tensions have been escalating in this uh, water region for quite some time. It's a small area um, and it's an important area for commercial and merchant ships to pass to Ukrainian ports um, and since about May, we've seen an escalation of Russian military activity, more vessels, more ships in the area, also Ukrainian activity, trying to keep an eye on what the Russians are doing. And then, you know, finally over the weekend, it all came to a head and quickly escalated to the point where you know based on recent reports we know that the russians have now taken three ukrainian ships into custody they're also holding there's some conflicting reports somewhere between 23 and 26 uh, ukrainian sailors some of those were injured in the um, uh, in the fires that uh, the russian ships allegedly fired the ukrainian side and so this is basically where we are today Um, the ukrainian government has responded to this Uh, by instituting a temporary martial law for about 30 days on some regions of Ukraine, uh, which of course is also a problematic decision to say say the least.
0: Okay, so let's unpack that because there's a huge amount in that very brief and admirable account. Why would Russia want to interfere with a Ukrainian tugboat going through the Kerch Strait into the Sea of Azov?
1: Well, what the Russian side claims um, is that they basically have sovereignty over the Kerch Strait and the Sea of Azov. That is not true necessarily uh, because in 2003 there was an agreement reached between Ukraine and Russia, obviously very different uh, political and historical moment, but that agreement is still in place and it gives Ukraine and Russia dual control of the Sea of Azov and also dual control of the Kerch Strait. Now things changed quite dramatically in 2014, which is when Russia invaded Crimea um, and Militarily, continues to occupy it, and since 2014, has actually built up Crimea to be much more of a military base uh, for Russia. And now, what we see the Russians doing, it's not that different from what I think the Chinese have been doing in the South China Sea, where they express sovereignty over this body of water because they claim sovereignty over a certain landmass. Um, and what they're doing now is they block this very critical passageway, the Kerch Strait. Uh, which is already costing the Ukrainian economy potentially millions because it's slowing down shipments into major ports um, in Ukraine. And what they will likely do, though we don't really know yet, if this is the long-term objective, is to continue to block that passageway uh, with potentially you know, forcing commercial vessels to pay uh, passage fees to get through the Kerch Strait, to get to those critical ports. Uh, so basically asserting sovereignty over these waterways, again, in violation of Uh, multiple international agreements.
0: So to understand what you just said, the listener has to visualize, I think, the geography here, which is, you know, you got the large Black Sea to the south, and then separating the Black Sea from Ukraine is the Crimean Peninsula, which of course is Ukrainian sovereign territory, but annexed by Russia in the earlier iteration, 2014. And then there's this little bubble of sea, the Azov Sea between the Crimean Peninsula and kind of Ukraine, Russia to the north. That is Ukraine's set of ports, right? To Southern ports. Correct. If if they don't have the, the Crimean Peninsula itself, which borders, you know, which abuts the Black Sea itself, right?
1: I think what's critical to understand about this, and you know, everybody that still is confused about geography should go to Google Maps and have a look at the map, and that's incredibly helpful to get a better idea of why this area is so prone to potential accidents and conflicts and why a skirmish like this um, was almost inevitable. When Russia took over Crimea, Russia didn't actually have a land path to get supplies to Individuals that they now consider Russian citizens. And so, what the Russians did in May was to great fanfare uh, build this bridge over the Kerch Strait, that little connector that you were talking about, Ben, um, that can now connects mainland Russia to the Crimean Peninsula, allowing Russians you know, to push through shipments of various goods and services, soldiers, equipment, as well, obviously, all the way to Crimea they're still having problems supplying Crimea with other basic services like electricity, uh, which still has to go through uh, mainland Ukraine, if you want to call it that. And But ever since they built this bridge, the conflict has been escalating because they also built the bridge in such a way that already precluded some you know, very large commercial vessels from being able to pass under it, which meant that it already started to hurt uh, Ukrainian ports. Um, as you mentioned, Ben, the Ukrainians now have two critical ports that connect to the Black Sea via the Sea of Azov and via the Kurd Strait. Those two ports have also uh, been under attack or attempted attack by Russia back in 2014 when they were attempting to basically get through to Crimea through the land territory of Ukraine before they build that bridge. So this gets pretty complicated pretty fast. I think the, the big question of what is motivating Russia to do this now um, has everything to do with one, they wanted, to, they wanted to consolidate their claim on Crimea and the waterways surrounding Crimea, and two, wanting to really squeeze and strangle those key Ukrainian ports, putting a lot more pressure on the Ukrainian economy in a way that they weren't able to do by land uh, in back in 2014.
0: So it's reasonable to understand this as a as an extension of the 2014 conflict over Crimea. Is that fair?
1: Absolutely, it's an expansion extension of, of that conflict by the Russian side.
0: Okay. Meanwhile, there's this other Russia-Ukraine conflict over the eastern Ukrainian Donbas uh, region, uh, which is you know, if you're if you're Russian oriented has a ethnic Russian population that wants autonomy slash independence, if you're Ukrainian has been occupied by Russian forces, I think the truth is clearly closer to the Ukrainian side there. To what extent is that one conflict and with the same conflict as the Crimea conflict? And to what extent is that an independent uh, set of issues, and how does it relate to what's going on navally now?
1: That's a great question. All of this is connected. So again, if we whip out our Google Maps, which are critical as we're having this conversation, and if we look at Ukraine's East, um there are now these contested territories that you know Ukraine says that it was a Russian backed force and Russian invasion of its eastern territory. So, You have to remember that in 2014, there were two separate offensives that the Russians launched. One was to militarily occupy Crimea and then illegally annex it and claim it as part of Russia, meaning people living in Crimea would have to become Russian citizens. And then there was a second front um, opened by land on the Ukrainian-Russian border where you had uh, basically Russian mercenary groups that we've heard a bit more about um, operating places like Syria and and Africa as well um, since 2014. Basically, these groups and also uh, some regular Russian military forces invading through Russia into eastern Ukraine. And we now have these two separatist territories in Ukraine's east uh, called the Donetsk and Luhansk quote-unquote people's republics. Now, if we're looking at a map, this eastern conflict, at one point when at the peak of fighting, was moving very, very quickly towards Ukraine's southeast. Where, where is that? It was moving very quickly towards those port cities that we've been talking about that are on the Sea of Azov, in particular, a very important city that most people have never heard about <laughs> called Mariupol. So it seemed for a while that the Russian intention back in 2014, 2015, was to keep pushing through Ukraine down to the Sea of Azov via land to take Mariupol and then keep pushing further and further until they got to Crimea. Basically giving them a road from where uh, they could reach Crimea via land. They failed at this because uh, the Ukrainians really dug in in Mariupol and the Russians didn't take the risk of pushing further inland. And then we basically have had uh, a, a more or less frozen conflict zone. There's still active fighting, but the border has not been shifting significantly since then. And now what we're seeing is this new offensive that looks like it's trying to achieve what the original offensive failed to do, which is, again, uh, squeeze Marupal, put the economic pressure on, then hopefully, it seems, unless there's a strong you know red line drawn there, uh, maybe get to that full takeover of southeastern Ukraine at some point. We haven't seen the escalation yet, but I don't think it's outside the realm of possibilities.
0: Just to to round out the geography, if you imagine the Sea of Azov as a uh, it's basically a circle or a kind of oval sitting above the Black Sea, the left-hand side of it the lower left-hand side is the uh, of the edge is the Crimean Peninsula the Russians took control of that and above it on the left-hand side the Russians kind of grabbed these two provinces and are threatening to push south to encircle the Ukrainian side of the sea which is their only port access is that is that a reasonable sort of account of the map
1: Yes, although it's uh, their only port access, it will be their only port access on the Sea of Azov. Ukrainians have access on the other side of Crimea via, uh, to the Black Sea, uh, most notably via Odessa, which is on the Black Sea. So it's not the Ukrainians' only ports, but they are important ports, especially for that conflict-ridden southeastern region to continue to get supplies. So again, if we're looking at a map and we're looking at this, you know, oval uh, water mass, the Sea of Azov, what it looks like is if is if there's kind of a donut around it, a ring that the Russians tried to impose via land four years ago and failed, and now seem to be kind of taking the tact uh, from from the sea to achieve what they weren't able to achieve before, um, as, as I mentioned.
0: Okay, uh, this uh, brings us to a raft of interesting legal questions, uh, Scott. But before we get to the international legal questions, I want to talk briefly about the domestic Ukrainian uh, imposition of martial law, or at least partial martial law. Uh, so Alina, walk us through what happened there and to what extent this is now a sort of Ukrainian democratic threat, sort of quite apart from, from anything else that might be going on.
1: So what's interesting, of course, is that nothing in this part of the world is devoid of politics. Um, And in some ways, we could see this escalation in the Sea of Azov as a sort of standard military maneuver. You know, if you think about an aggressive force that is trying to take control of a land territory, they fail coming in from one side, and so they're trying uh, the pass um, through the sea, uh, to achieve the same potential ends, so it looks like a, you know a pretty st- traditional strategic military move um, that is still, I think, relatively constrained and restrained in its ultimate objectives. I, I do want to mention that because you know a lot of the commentary about this escalation has been asking the question: Is this you know the beginning of an international conflict? Is this a potential a uh, path towards towards you know World War Three? Um, I don't think the probability of that. Is very high. In fact, I think it's quite low. Um, what I think this looks much more like a kind of standard Russian creep where they try to uh, gain further and further control of territories that they see within their own sphere of influence, but they're not interested and aren't incentivized to start a conflict. But they know perfectly well that if they did, the Ukrainians would be completely outflanked and outgunned. They cannot defend themselves against Russian military might in the sea or on land. But what's been happening in Ukraine, of course, domestically, is that um, Ukraine is in election season. Uh, The presidential elections are coming up in March. Uh, The current president, uh, Petro Poroshenko, um, is polling in the single digits. He's been very, very unpopular. And even before this escalation, there's been a lot of speculation that he would try to postpone the elections. Uh, thinking that would somehow benefit him politically, would buy him more time. You know, you can make up all kinds of reasons why he'd be interested in doing that. And so we have this interesting move by the president of Ukraine when this escalation happens over the weekend, uh, when uh, the Russian ship rams the Ukrainian tugboat to propose imposing martial law. Now, in all the conflict that we've seen unfold in Ukraine over the last four years, active fighting, thousands of Ukrainians killed, thousands of them killed, Uh, the Ukrainian government has never imposed martial law. So this seemed like a very extreme move on his part uh, that was likely politically motivated. He took this proposal to the Ukrainian parliament, which contested it. And the outcome we got was not a 60-day martial law, which the president had proposed, but a 30-day martial law term that only affects the Ukrainian provinces that are close to line of conflict. So it's not for all of Ukraine, it's really sort of the eastern regions um, where there is fighting going on Ukraine's East, Ukraine's southeast where the Sea of Azov altercation um, has been happening. So it is a limited martial law and it is for only 30 days and the president has been forced to guarantee that uh, the president presidential elections will go as scheduled but still this was uh, by all accounts uh, an extreme move in the in the bigger context all right so
0: you mentioned one oddity here which is that Poroshenko is polling in the single digit approval space which is you know bad even by the standards of say US congressional approval ratings (laughs) Um, I look at Poroshenko and I say boy if anybody in the world has been dealt a tough hand it's Petro Poroshenko uh, you know, comes in after uh, Yanukovych is ousted, you know, has this immediate war with, you know, a a rump superpower and his country is an economic disaster zone uh, and the world will not, you know, stand up for Ukrainian sovereignty over uh, Crimea. And I look at Poroshenko as somebody who has, you know, had a really really tough hand to play why is he unpopular domestically uh, is there some source of that that is sort of other than that his situation is essentially unmanageable
1: well I, th- I think your assessment is completely on point ben um there's no question that anybody that uh came into this position of uh, being the ukrainian president after a massive uprising uh, Democratic uprising, a revolution, the former president uh, fleeing to Russia, uh, Yanukovych, who you mentioned, and Ukraine basically being left with no money in its budget. Uh, the Ukrainian state budget was completely robbed by the previous regime. Um, and so, no question that he was dealt a very difficult hand, plus an open military conflict with a military power that Ukraine cannot match and cannot defend itself against and had no military to even protect itself with. The Ukrainian army uh, was really in in shambles uh, when the the Russians started to invade in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine as well. So despite that, there have been a lot of uh, questions and allegations about his own integrity, meaning the president's integrity. Many suspect and see that he has been blocking some serious reforms in Ukraine, that he's sort of still part of the old regime in terms of his mentality, at least that he sees his office as a way to profit, um, not as a way to serve his people. Uh, he certainly came into office with some money of his own. He was known as the Chocolate Czar uh, before he came into office for being for owning one of the largest uh, chocolate candy manufacturers um, in Ukraine uh, with also factories in Russia. And he hasn't lost a lot of his money, unlike many other Ukrainian minigargs or oligarchs have as a result of this this conflict. Um, There's also questions uh, about his uh, ability uh, to defend Ukraine as uh, the leader of the country, his ability to get Western support. Um, We should note that the IMF had to halt its payments to Ukraine because it didn't judge that the Ukrainian government was doing enough to push through various economic reforms. Um, So there's been a lot of disillusionment with Parashank among the Ukrainian people, um, especially because um, he's seen as still corrupt um, and still incapable of providing the kinds of vision and leadership that Ukraine really needs right now. But I would also note that this is pretty normal in Ukraine. You know, for years now, for decades, we've seen uh, this kind of euphoria about a new leader that was going to bring Ukraine into the fold of, you know, Euro-Atlantic, Western integration. And then they just as soon as they come to power, it just doesn't come to pass. Um, and so I think the the danger in Ukraine now is people are looking to other potential solutions that could actually be much more detrimental to Ukraine. I, I'm talking here about a woman by the name of Yulia Tymoshenko. that some listeners may recognize, uh, at least visually. she's She has these blonde braids that she wears up in this very traditional way. And she's been around politics for quite some time. And she's kind of pushing for a much more say, populist agenda that we've seen emerge across Europe in recent years. And she is now the favored uh, person to at least make it through the first round of the presidential elections and into the second round. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
0: a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Okay, Scott, so this is all from an international law point of view, uh, what you might call a target-rich environment. Where to start? Let's start with the specific incident. How do you evaluate it?
2: Well, so the incident itself, I think we need to put in a broader context, both historically and legally. So l- let me bring it back a little bit to put us in a situation of understanding what the rules governing maritime traffic in the Sea of Azov might be under a, different, a couple of different scenarios. Uh, there was a time where there was kind of no controversy, no dispute over the rules that governed here. And that was in before 1991. At that time, the Sea of Azov was essentially landlocked within the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union at the time said, this is our internal sea. It's a body of water that's entirely subject to our sovereignty. And international agreements- Trevor So I think
0: like, the Great Salt Lake right
2: perhaps exactly or you know a variety of uh, of other like Lake Champlain i think is entirely landlocked in the united states i could be wrong on that but but i think i believe it is uh, some an example like that where there's no dispute there's no international traffic that can go through because it's really a sea that is, doesn't lead anywhere but to that country to the soviet union in that case and is within its territory after 1991, when Ukraine broke away, there became this open question saying, well, what is the sea now? At that point, Ukraine had about half the circle, maybe a little more than half of the circle, including Crimea, including this northern stretch where Mariupol and some of these other cities that Alina was describing fit in and Russia had the kind of eastern half and they both met at the Kerch Strait. The Russians in control of the eastern half, uh, the Ukrainians in control of the western half, which is part of Crimea. Uh, There was a lot of dispute for about the 10 years or more after that saying, what is the regime governing this? They had developed a kind of set of understandings over what they would do to handle maritime traffic. But the delineation of the exact rights was a subject of dispute. Uh, A number of times, Ukrainian parliament considered kind of declaring, hey, this is our territorial sea. This stretch of territory on the western half is subject to our sovereignty, which would go in about a certain distance into the sea at 12 nautical miles, I believe. and that this is our area that we are able to control and consider our uh, sovereign territory. We're not going to have this kind of shared arrangement. In 2003, however, they ultimately agreed to enter this disagreement that Lena mentioned, where they say and describe that the Sea of Azov as being a shared historical internal sea of Ukraine and Russia. And essentially what that does in practice is it kind of – says, hey, this is our issue. General rules governing the law of the sea, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea being the most prominent one, your default rules don't really apply here. We're going to come up with our own separate arrangements. And this agreement and follow-on agreements establish a bunch of sort of procedures about how maritime traffic was going to be managed, information sharing, inspection rights, things like that the Russians and the Ukrainian authorities were going to share amongst each other. Um, That's arrangement more or less proceeded uh, up until 2014 with the seizure and eventual claimed annexation of Crimea by Russia. Russia now considers Crimea to be part of Russia, although it is pretty much the only state that views it that way, or one of very few. That kind of changes the dynamics here, because all of a sudden, the Kersh Strait, at least from the Russian perspective, uh, wasn't uh, something that's shared with the Crimeans. It's entirely under Russian control on both sides. One thing that that leads them to do is to start building the bridge that Alina mentioned, which connects these two territories, obviously something you wouldn't do if one half of the territory was still considered Ukrainian. Um, And it gives them control, de facto control, if not legal control of the maritime traffic. So what the Russians say up until this point is that they essentially say, hey, these are still, we're still treating the sea as subject to this kind of condominium arrangement, to these subset of rules that we've worked out with the Ukrainians, they let certain Ukrainian ships go through at various points to these ports, Um, but they do it subject to their terms and their conditions. They say, we're going to inspect these ships. We're only going to allow a certain number of ships through. And then most importantly, as Alina mentioned, they build this bridge that dramatically narrows the amount of maritime traffic that can go through, that gives them a doorway that they can patrol and block very easily. So easily, in fact, that to block the entry into the Sea of Azov, essentially only requires them to park a single tanker across the gap underneath the bridge that boats can get through. And that's essentially shuts off the Sea of Azov. The Ukrainians have responded to this in a number of different ways. First, in 2016, they filed uh, essentially a lawsuit on arbitration claim before the Permanent Court of Arbitration pursuant to the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, claiming that building this bridge, um, withholding uh, Ukrainian rights to kind of passage through uh, into the Sea of Azov, violates the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, violates the rights that the Ukraine has under that convention, to which both Russia and the Ukraine are parties. Russia says, this doesn't – the UN Convention of the Law of C doesn't apply here because this is still an internal sea. That convention doesn't apply to internal seas. There's kind of a jurisdictional debate going on there in the first instance that we're still waiting to be resolved and those proceedings aren't entirely public. So we don't exactly know their current state or the full scope of arguments that are being made there. Um, the other thing that Ukraine does is it starts pushing the envelope uh, so in a few incidents I think the last one was October Alina may know better than I do there's a case where Ukrainian ships basically ran this sort of uh, network of arrangements that the Russians were were maintaining and without seeking the usual permission and authorization moved a few ships into the Sea of Azov essentially during a period in which the Russians just weren't paying enough attention um, I think that is probably we war- correctly seen as kind of a direct predecessor to this incident. In this incident, the Russians say, hey, Ukrainians, you aren't playing the game. They say this is an act of Ukrainian provocation, because Ukrainians are refusing to comply with the rules that they've set forward for maritime traffic coming into the Sea of Azov. I'm not entirely sure if we know the extent to which Ukraine was complying with the rules as Russia established. We know in the past they haven't always with these Ukrainian ships. But then Russia responded in this case very forcefully by seizing the ships, opening fire on them, ramming them um, in an effort to enforce the kind of maritime regime and now is threatening uh, and I think if de facto is at this point shutting down maritime traffic into the Sea of Azov entirely this kind of leads us to this question today about you know what are the rights what is th- is this a proper thing for Russia to be able to do and it's kind of a complicated argument it, ironically the kind of internal seas arrangement is both a double-edged sword it does say essentially that Ukraine, does have access and should have access to the Sea of Azov for a variety of purposes, but it doesn't set out any very concrete rules about that's how that's supposed to be realized. In contrast, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, if this, if this were not considered an eternal sea pursuant to that agreement or just the general practice of the states, would guarantee Ukraine rights of passage even if this were considered Russian Territorial waters; they would have a right of passage to their own territorial waters on the other side. uh, One that's not even clear could be suspended in all circumstances. Uh, So, you know, there is this complicated legal argument about saying, "Well, what are the positions of the states going to be moving forward?" It's likely in a state of flux.
1: Well, what's interesting about the context you lay out, uh, Scott, is that you know the, the Russians have already de facto been exerting and expanding their "quote unquote" authority. To control those waterways, and since at least May, there have been over 150 uh, ships that the Russian uh, security services, the FSB, have stopped and detained, or harassed, or searched illegally uh, before they were allowed to pass, which has caused a lot of you know logistical delays and shipment delays um, already. So you know this may seem like a, a surprise, but certainly we have seen this build up over time. Uh, at least since May, and we've seen Russians, you know, consistently. I think also push the envelope. I think waiting for the Ukrainians to take one wrong step, so then they could make the move and say, "Well, this was a Ukrainian provocation uh, first and foremost, and we're just responding." And we've seen this movie before. You know, we've seen it in two thousand eight, uh, where the Russians did a similar attack um, in Georgia, uh, then provoking the Georgian government to start a war with Russia, which they clearly couldn't compete with Russia in that way. And I think the concern is that we might be watching this movie again now.
0: All right. So let's talk about the international reaction to this because, you know, the fine points that will interest the arbitration panel under the uh, under UNCLOS uh, is not, I think, is not the driving question that, you know, is affecting international reaction to this right now, which is much more along the, you know, gestalt lines of, is Russia trying to provoke a conflict a la Georgia 2008, a la Ukraine 2014, in which uh, that is then used as an excuse to seize more Ukrainian territory. So... The U.N. Security Council, given that Russia has a veto in it, is not an especially promising instrument for restraining Russian behavior in this regard. But Scott, what? how do you assess what happened in the Security Council over the last couple of days? And, you know, is this, is this a way of signaling that, you know, sort of the rest of the world ex- expects restraint? Or is this just a you know, a kind of flailing on the part of uh, other countries in the world.
2: No, I think we've seen a fairly unified and strong response to this, uh, in opposition to kind of Russia's actions. Remember, the UN Security Council meeting was initially called for by Russia in this case uh, on a claim that Ukraine was engaging in provocative behavior. Uh, that narrative broke down very quickly <laughs> uh, under strong if you pressure. You can
1: see me rolling my eyes right now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you can maybe able to hear Elena rolling her eyes. It is that aggressive? Uh, so you know that initial effort to kind of spin this narrative, although I suspect it was intended more for domestic audiences international audiences, uh, nonetheless broke down very quickly on the international sphere. Uh, We saw the Security Council come out, and members of the Security Council, I should say, uh, come out with strong statements saying essentially this is seen as a Russian act of provocation. Ukraine clearly has some set of rights here. Uh, And this is where those states are kind of clinging it to these legal details about the state of rights. There's a little ambiguity sometimes about what exactly those rights are, but there's little doubt that Ukraine does have some rights to maritime access to its ports in the Sea of Azov. And there's widespread agreement about that among the international community. Um, The difficulty is the veto vote that Russia does have. Uh, So the Security Council being able to take actions pursuant to uh, its Chapter 7 authorities or other authorities dictating actions requiring it as an international legal matter of other states to resolve this conflict seems extremely unlikely uh, unless it's something that's voluntarily entered into by Russia. Maybe that's possible. Maybe Russia has decided this is not the time we want to start this and they subject themselves to some sort of arrangement to imagine that that's a likely scenario. Instead, the more likely scenario is that this is borne out through bilateral pressure and action. We've seen NATO react very strongly, essentially say that they are supportive of Ukraine's claims of rights here, uh, uh, You know, it, strongly implying there that there may be some sort of military support for that at a certain point, although there's no clear guarantee of that necessarily depending on the type of conflict that might arise from this. Um, But the more kind of unified front and strong reaction you have to the Russian provocation here. uh, That's really the source of pushback as it comes, and the threat of additional sanctions. It's an interesting point, uh, I think, to note that the foreign ministry of Russia responded to this with this very interesting statement, saying essentially, this is Ukraine trying to provoke an incident simply to give the international community more pretext to make us subject to additional sanctions. Uh, So they at least at a minimum have sanctions on the mind, uh, and that may be an outcome we see from this. But those sanctions are going to be on a, a bilateral basis between the United States, European states, and other states, they're not going to be U.N. Security Council backed or authorized sanctions.
0: Okay. So this raises a really interesting question that may be a subject of its of its own podcast. But if the principal leverage that the international community has against Russia is not international law, uh, or at least international law you know as its major instrumentalities you know a security council resolution a you know a law of the sea arbitration is not going to solve ukraine's problem here the instrumentality that may have capacity to do that is unilateral and multilateral pressure by major Russian trading partners and markets to either sanction or restrict Russian activity in fashions that are sufficiently economically damaging uh, as to be a meaningful source of pressure. I am interested in, you know, Scott, your sense of, like, what does that say about the international law instruments that we are relatively quickly developing this other one to restrain that's not, that's not even a legal instrument. Exactly. It's a, it's a creature of lots of countries, domestic laws, right. And domestic behavior kind of agreeing on an ad hoc basis to gang up on Russia and impose Uh, sanctions regimes that are sufficiently punishing to restrain behavior. That, of course, mirrors what happened with Iran in the run-up to the nuclear deal. I don't want to go into whether that was a good idea or a bad idea or well done or not, but it does seem like there is this new relatively new uh, kind of instrumentality of pushback against, you know, aggressive regimes, which is sort of coordinated sanctions by large numbers of countries. Uh, That seems like more effective in some respects than what we had imagined as the traditional international law response to aggressive behavior. And it certainly seems to be the one that Putin is most afraid of. So what, what... What do we make of that, and and should that cause any kind of head-scratching about the notional enforcement mechanisms that the international community has created?
2: Well, so Ben, I I agree. I think this could be the subject for a whole other podcast. But I want to go and and just push back on a little bit of the framing of that Um, because this sort of activity isn't necessarily that new. Um, And it's also, I think, a little bit of a misconception to think about the Security Council as the primary enforcement mechanism for international law, even in these circumstances. You know, international law is, you know, this decentralized body that has always had a range of enforcement mechanisms. And even the UN Charter doesn't anticipate that the Security Council is going to be the line of first resort for a variety of types of actions. It anticipates a number of state responses to international legal obligations. Security Council is in in many ways designed to be the line of last resort. Now, here we have a case with Russia being a veto power, and that is a challenge, right? That's undeniably hugely weakening to the Security Council, particularly because Russia has proven much more aggressive with its veto since, you know, some would argue it dates back to the Libyan intervention and concerns that the United States overstepped and its allies overstepped the authorization there. Some say it dates earlier. That's, again, a longer conversation than we should get into here. But regardless, Russia has been very aggressive with its veto uh, and used it in ways that have really limited the Security Council's ability to be effective. That doesn't mean that the legal considerations here are entirely relevant. I would argue. When you have lots of individual states coordinating their actions – the first thing you need to do is to get up enough point of agreement to say, hey, this is where we think the lines of conduct are acceptable. This is where they're unacceptable. And these are the lines where we think we're going to coordinate a response. And that's what treaties like the UN Convention the Law of the Sea Treaty do. Uh, they establish the rules of the game. And once those rules are laid out, coordinating you know, multilateral efforts to enforce those, even outside the context of the Security Council, becomes much easier because, again, they've already agreed on the rules of the game and particularly here with the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea, which the United States, I should know, isn't a party to, but it recognizes that a lot of the rules reflect customary international law. Most states really are parties to the UN Convention of the Law of the Sea at this point. Here, you know, it establishes a really baseline set of rules that are relied upon heavily by lots of states in the international community. Uh, They provide it not only the guarantees to its rights to exercise mineral rights uh, for for underneath seas that are abetting it, its rights to its territorial sea, but perhaps more importantly, its its rights to navigation and innocent passage through other territorial waters, its rights to engage in international maritime traffic. And when we hear about things like FONOPS uh, in regards to China and the South China Sea and in these other contexts, that's freedom of navigation operations that the US Navy undertakes and certain other militaries around the world, that's a sign of how important these rights are being viewed by a number of governments, not just the United States, even though, again, it's being coordinated on a multilateral basis, not through international institution. So I don't think it's a sign that the legal considerations are weaker here. I think it's a sign that the UN Security Council as an institution is handicapped. Uh, It's handicapped by the fact that there's this veto power. And Russia is not the only one who sees that, uh, who benefits from that. The United States does as well. You can look at UN Security Council resolutions regarding Israel for the last 30 years. A lot of people in the international community say that's an example of the United States veto power making the Security Council ineffective. The United States doesn't feel that way. Israel doesn't feel that way. But that complaints there on a variety of fronts. That's why there are these other mechanisms in place that turn to the same international legal lines uh, and rely on them to help coordinate conduct that can enforce international law in the absence of those institutions.
1: So just to add to to what you were saying, Scott, and uh, Ben's point about you know sanctions really becoming the favorite tool of imposing consequences and punishments on, you know, bad behavior of of other states by the United States and also uh, by Europe. You know, what we've seen in terms of the U.S. policy and the transatlantic policy on Russia is, of course, sanctions have become the ultimate tool. uh, But the U.S. has now moved with the Trump administration to institute any additional sanctions on Russia for whether that be its uh, cyber hacking activity against international organizations, whether that be for its election interference in the U.S. and elsewhere, for its um, actions in in Ukraine previously or in Syria. The U.S. has really moved to institute these unilaterally. And I think that weakens the kind of unified front the transatlantic community has been able to have vis-a-vis Russia previously. Um, And it also um, brings up the question of whether the sanctions regime hasn't been effective at all. Because if we think of sanctions as a policy tool that's supposed to be a deterrent to prevent future bad behavior, um, then I think the sea of Azov escalation that we've been discussing is a clear counterpoint to that effectiveness of that deterrent, uh, because clearly Russia has continued to act uh, with relative impunity because I don't think the Kremlin sees uh, the international community responding in in a coherent, uh, strong way to whatever it wants to do, especially in Ukraine which is not a NATO member state, which is not an EU member state, where the U.S., you know, from the point of view of some here in Washington, uh, has limited security interests. So I think the question that I'm thinking a lot about these days, and maybe worth having a podcast around this as well, is, you know, how do we understand sanctions policy and its effectiveness? And uh, there's a lot of conversations now happening in Congress to talk about the international response. The uh, ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Senator Menendez, put out a statement asking congressional members to now really put back on the docket uh, the so-called Dasca legislation, which would allow uh, Congress to impose increasingly crippling, broad economic sanctions on Russia. And so we're seeing this push towards more and more sanctions but without a clear vision of ends. And I think this is, to my mind, a really critical moment to start thinking about, you know, what are the policy tools that the U.S. actually has be beyond the U.N. Security Council for all its limitations, beyond international law in some ways, because you know, Russia doesn't seem to care about that either, and neither does China to a certain extent. So if sanctions are our main tool, are they really effective? Um, and if they're not, you know what what's the reality that we're trying to affect on the ground when it comes to these you know rising authoritarian regimes like like Russia?
2: I couldn't agree with that more. And the kind of unilateral inclination of U.S. sanctions uh, that is on display here in regard to Russia and of all of other states, I think Iran is probably the clearest example of that, really is could potentially be a long-term problem. Uh, and it's the multilateral nature, the coordination of it, providing a unified front that makes sanctions effective and sustainable and has the most effect. I'm not sure I entirely agree whether we that Russia isn't affected by the sanctions or isn't concerned about them. That also counterfactuals about what they would do in the absence of sanctions. Certainly, it's not a one-to-one, you know, an absolute bar uh, that would prevent any sort of provocative behavior. Um, but I would say it is the inclination of this administration and the United States more generally, I would say, to not may- want to go through the effort of fully coordinating these and instead wield its unilateral economic heft that can limit the effectiveness. And at a certain point, you're going to hit a tipping point with these sanctions where uh, states are not going to have the same level of engagement. They're not going to coordinate and pass along with them. And then the United States is really going to lose its sanctions edge. So I 100 percent agree that these sorts of use of these tools unilaterally needs to be looked at really closely.
0: OK. So uh, before we wrap up, Alina, I want to talk a little bit about the domestic Russian politics here. Uh, you warn us on a uh, sort of ongoing basis, Uh, don't imagine Putin as a kind of 10 foot tall giant who's kind of uh, capable of, you know, anything, there has been some speculation in the press of late that this set of actions and this crisis is triggered in part as a function of declining popularity domestically. And so I'm just interested in your sense, how should we understand Putin's decision to do this now uh, in relation to domestic Russian politics?
1: Sure. I mean, there's been a lot of speculation about what the Kremlin might do in light of Putin's dropping approval ratings. The reason his approval ratings have dropped in April from a high of 82% or so uh, you know, an enviable uh, high number for any leader, even an authoritarian country, uh, to now to about sixty six percent in October. So still high, but not for Putin. So Putin has basically been back now to the same approval ratings he had before the annexation of Crimea, and then Russia's takeover of Crimea really bumped him up. Um, you know, 20 to 30 points all at once, and his ratings essentially stayed that high until recently. So why have they dropped? This has all to do with domestic politics. You know, the Russian economy, because of its own doing and because of the fluctuation in oil prices, um, in which Russia continues to be almost fully dependent on for state revenue, has finally forced the Kremlin to institute some really unpopular economic reforms, um, most notably increasing the pension age of uh, Russian men from 60 to 65 and women from 55 to 60, which, you know, I think in the U.S. sounds perfectly reasonable, but we have to remember that the life expectancy for Russian men is 66. And so what the regime has been telling the Russian people is, you know, we're going to continue to steal from you and enrich ourselves with our fancy yachts and whatever else, uh, bank accounts, uh, real estate in London, but you now have to work till the grave and you're never going to see that pension uh, that we've promised you. Um, and so this has actually led to some demonstrations and the drop in Putin's approval rate rating can be pretty much attributed to this unpopular policy. And so the question has been, okay, well, in all these months, you know, since April till now, what's the Kremlin going to do? And so it'd be easy to say, well, uh, the Kremlin's looking for another foreign policy adventure like Crimea that will boost Putin's ratings again. But the reality is that there is no second Crimea. You know, there is no uh, territory uh, that the Russians have the capacity, the capability, um, and the incentive to take um, in the same way they took Crimea. And so I think what's happened in the Sea of Azov was almost inevitable um, because of some of the issues we've been discussing here, the, the narrow passageway, the, the rising potential for accidents and, and conflict there. Uh, but certainly, uh, the, it's, a, it's hard to see how this escalation, uh, this maritime escalation, is going to really serve Putin domestically and give him a bump. I think that's still an open question. And I say that because we're going to have to wait and see how the Russian media spins this. Um, but it's going to be much more difficult to spin this Um, into, you know, Putin being the great protector of the Russian people, Putin putting Russia back on the global stage, um, because it is much more complex, it's not so clear cut, like we got more land hurrah. Um, It's a much more complicated and less exciting uh, foreign policy adventure. So I think that that remains a question of whether the approval ratings really has something to do with this or this is just something the Russians have been planning for some time and uh, sort of situation on the ground kind of forced their hand. You know, the other piece to consider here, I think, is that at the end of the day, you know, you said, Ben, about Russia being 10 foot tall. Um, You know, it is it is true. Um, You know, they will continue to assert their dominance and their control over the countries that are on Russia's periphery that Russia continues to see as rightfully belonging to its sphere of influence. Um, And we're not going to see an end to that anytime soon. There's a lot of speculation about Belarus, for example, uh, more escalations in places like Moldova, in the Caucasus, maybe even Central Asia. But I don't see Russians having an incentive to really push the envelope as to get involvement from the United States. Certainly not. Um, they would not be you know, a real competitor to U.S. and NATO military might. Nobody wants a war. And I see the, the recent uh, engagement in the Sea of Azov as a relatively constrained military operation and to the service of an assertion over these waterways and land masses, much in the same way as China has been doing. So I think in domestic situation, Russia is driving some of this, but we won't attribute too much to it, Quite yet, I think uh, we still have to wait and see um, how the Kremlin decides to play this.
0: We are going to leave it there. Alina, Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Alina and Scott for coming together on short notice to do this near emergency podcast. You need to do your part. I know if you've already done this, I'm really sorry to keep bugging you about it. But if you're one of the approximately 45,000 people who listens to the Lawfare podcast and has not given us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast distribution you use, you are part of the problem and you need to become part of the solution. So tweet about it. Share us on Facebook. Tell your friends about the Lawfare podcast. We don't do advertising. We only do you. Our audio editor this week was Matt Kahn. The Lawfare podcast is produced by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is, as ever, performed by the one, the only, the back in China, Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.